Welcome to Transparency Talks, the member-oriented podcast focused on issues of truth, transparency, and trust. I'm Jeff Kelly Lowenstein, founder and executive director of the Center for Collaborative Investigative Journalism, or CCIJ. Thank you for joining us today. I'm thrilled and honored and grateful to have our first edition with dear friend and colleague Raymond Joseph. Hi, Jeff. Thank you very much. And thank you for the opportunity. Really excited to have you, Ray. And what we really want to do in this podcast is not just talk about uh, a specific story or how you did it, but really to get to know the people who make up our community. And so I wanted to start with you, both because you've been such a key member of the lottery project that became the basis for our organization, but also because you bring such a rich history of reporting and editing and training and uh, transitioning into a bunch of different roles. So what I'd like to do is just start by having you take us through, Ray, your entry into journalism. I know you've spoken to the students in our classes about how it was kind of the the early to mid-70s, around 1974, if I remember correctly, and you really had a decision about whether to go through to tertiary education and university route or to go into journalism. So can you just talk us through that moment in the country and your decision to enter this field that you're still going strong in so many years later? I wasn't working. I was in two minds what to do. And so what I was doing is I was going out and partying until the early hours of the morning, sleeping late and actually doing nothing. And and my dad was on my case all the time saying, are you not going to get a job? You can't just sleep your life away. And, and my mom had heard about a job going for a very junior reporter on a newspaper called the, the Jewish Times, a Jewish newspaper which no longer exists in South Africa. And, and keeping the peace, she said, listen, I've heard there's a job going for a junior journalist. Why don't you apply? And... I thought, okay, well, here we go um, while I'm making up my mind about university. And and I went and I gave that a tryout and I actually got a taste for it. And and then an opportunity came up, the Rand Daily Mail, which no longer exists, which was the premier anti-apartheid newspaper in South Africa. I'd, I'd heard that they had a cadet course going and I applied for the cadet course. And I was still thinking of going to university and I was accepted for the cadet course. And and suddenly I had this choice, you know, stay at home, depend on my parents for a living. I don't have money. My parents are going to have to pay for university. Or I can actually go and join the Rand Daily Mail's cadet course, which was a dream come true, and earn my own salary. And there just there was no toss up to it. So that's the route I went. Well, I I really appreciate your talking us through this, Ray, particularly the point about it sounds like uh, the beginning of it all was your good sense to listen to your mother. (laughs) So good things happen when you listen to mom and you've really taken it from there. 
So I never went to university. I went through the back door. The course was the equivalent of a, of a practical uh, diploma. And it was very much a hands-on. You spend six, six weeks in a classroom. And then after that, they moved you around. At that stage, the, that group owned um, Sunday newspapers. It owned uh, morning newspapers. It owned afternoon newspapers. And what you did over 18 months is you did six-month stints on each. So I did, I did those 18, I did those 18 months and, and, and towards the end of it, coming up to 1976, which was the student uprising where it began in Soweto on June the 16th. And it spread out across, um, what was in the Vidvatisrant is now Gauteng over the next weeks and months. But three days later, um, Alexandria Township, which is in the northeastern suburbs of Johannesburg, uh, it was the 19th of June, quarter light. And, and as, as a youngster, um, so you, you couldn't go into a bar, you couldn't get a drink until you were 18. So what we used to do is we would go into the speakeasies, into the shabins of, Ale- of Alex, and go and listen to jazz, and it was like another world. Uh, it was fantastic. And despite apartheid, no one, you were there for the music. No one thought about color then. But I also learned about Alex. I knew my way around Alex intimately. I knew the back roads. So Soweto was designed late. And Soweto was designed, as many of the black townships were, with limited um, access points. So that if the police wanted to close it down, they only had to close a few roads. Alex wasn't like that. And there were many ways in. And the news desk was talking that day. What are we going to do about Alex? The police are stopping everyone. And I put my hand up and I said, well, I know how to get into Alex. (laughs) There's multiple ways into Alex. And they said, what do you mean you know? I said, listen, Alex is very poor. It's easy to get in. And, And I dived in there and I kind of... I guess I lost my innocence and my virginity that day. It it was something I'd never seen. There was actually war going on. I lived a couple of kilometers away from there. I had no idea what was going on there. There were people being shot. There was violence. So what, what had happened in 76 is the police were not ready for it. They weren't ready to quell an uprising or, or riots. So what they did is they went in um, with with steel and and indiscriminately shooting terror. Basically, what they thought is they were going to stop the uprising by terror. And until then, I'd seen as a child, um, I'd once seen someone who'd hung himself under a bridge, and I'd seen an accident with a dead body. Um, beyond that, I'd never seen dead people. On my first day, I probably saw half a dozen people dead. And over the next days that followed, the bodies were just piling up. And so, so there, there was my introduction in, into journalism. Um, from there, I, I joined the Sunday Times, which is the biggest paper in the country, as a crime reporter, um, which was very valuable because I learned the value of the beat system. And it really taught me how important contact building was. Um, 
And I spent a few years doing that. And then I was transferred down to Port Elizabeth um, as a bureau chief, one of the coastal towns. You know, it sounds all very grand, but the bureau was me and myself. And I covered a really big area. And I did pretty well there. So I was sent off to Durban to run a bureau, which also produced a local regional insert to the paper. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I went off to London and spent three years um, on Fleet Street when Fleet Street was still real. I started in print. I've got ink in my veins. But one of my party tricks throughout my life and... I urge any journalist in these days, you need to keep on reinventing yourself. You need to keep current with the tech. I'm just constantly learning. Um, I'm no longer young. I've been at this now. This is my 48th year. And I'm having more, as much fun as I've ever had. And I don't stop learning. I believe that if you lose your curiosity as a journalist, you've kind of lost it. I really appreciate the point you just made about that that reinvention and can you talk a little bit i understand you're always learning and that's one of the things the many things i've admired about how you've continued to do that and stay fresh so how do you keep your pulse on what's happening and identify the new trends and what do you see particularly at this moment of where journalism is going or what sort of some of the ma major trends uh, or things that you're following or looking to develop I think probably the two most significant things that have happened um, is the opening of data and how easily, how easy, how easy it is now to acquire data, the number of free tools. And it's kind of, it's taken journalism to a whole new level, you know, because very often the news is driven, it's events driven. There's a press conference we'll report it. There's a motor accident, there's an aircraft accident, we'll report it. A crime has been committed, we'll report it. What data allows us to do is to find the less obvious stories, to find the outliers. You know, the data might say something, but when you go on the ground, the data wasn't correct or, or there was more, more to it, but it really points you to, where, to where, and go, where to go and have a look. As to the future of journalism, I think that the future has begun. I think CCIJ is part of that future where what you have is collaboration. So newsrooms no longer can do, unless you're the New York Times, the Washington Post, and you've got serious resources. Newsrooms can't do these big investigations on their own. They're too expensive. They're too time-consuming. It's this cross-border collaboration where, where, where you're, you're able to work with colleagues on the same story. We did it with the lottery. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, re it's a really important point. And you mentioned the lottery project. I mean, you and I met in 2015 at the African Investigative Journalism Conference, had kind of initial conversation with some folks about doing a, a larger project, but then really came together with other people in 2016, and in the face of just tremendous harassment, threats, lawsuits, and so on. So can you talk us through that original meeting? I know we like to tell the story about getting together and having a couple bottles of wine with some other folks, 
about deciding to do the project, and then from there, how you've carried it out, how you got the tool going with ID and the folks that open up, the training in other parts of the country, what you found, and then a lot of the, the how you've kept going in the face of all that many, many uh, sources of harassment, obstacles, lawsuits, and so on. And when you when you said lunch, remember you could actually see light bulbs going on. Everyone sitting around there. Let's do lottery. And I sat down with Adia Yal, who's probably one of the most sus data people I know. Um, he he comes from a tech background, but he gets the journalism, which is for me very unusual for coming under one person like that. And I'm a true data journalist. And we spoke about it, and the D then suggested, let's scrape the data. Let's put it into a tool. So to save costs, because we didn't have a lot of money, you know, very often what happened with the project is, is we've had grants from time to time, but a lot of the time this project has been self-funded by individuals and sometimes at great cost, to be honest with you. And there was large sums of money for projects was disappearing. It wasn't being put to good use. Um, very early on, what we discovered is that a critical change had been made to the law in 2015. There was an amendment to the Lotteries Act, which um, at the time, I believe that the amendment opportunists, and, and we dubbed them, we invented a word, lotopreneurs, people who make a living out of getting money from the lottery, and that's not by buying tickets and winning, but getting projects funded. Um, I'm now of the opinion that the law was changed to enable it, not the other way around. And we've gone through a period of, of state capture under President Zuma, the, the, the nine, ten lost years in South Africa where this country was swamped by corruption. And there's been several inquiries there, and you're seeing it being mirrored in what's happened at the lottery. And the main work has been done by myself and a guy called Anton Fransale, who's a local newspaper editor up in Limpopo, who's a bit like me. He's got a skin of a rhinoceros, and we don't give up easily. We're very tenacious. So we are being sued. Myself, ground up, the editor of ground up, Nathan Geffen, um, some of our sources. So the response has been to launch lawfare against us to tie us up in, in litigation, thinking that they were going to exhaust us financially. It, it finally has reached the stage where two weeks ago, so there's a lawyer in, in um, Pretoria who literally hijacked a nonprofit organization and used it to get millions and millions from the lottery. He subsequently received that we know of at least 60 million rand for various projects that have never been finished, he he actually brought um, an uh, he brought an urgent interdict against us, asking a judge to order us to stop reporting on him, to remove anything that we'd reported about him off our website, and to do nothing until the courts had decided. Now it can take up to three years for a case like that to come to court. Beyond that, people regularly say, why don't you report these people to the police? Well, it's not our job. Our job 
we are not policemen. We don't work with the police. Um, we would lose the trust. I mean, journalists should know this. They know this. Um, the other thing is I've been defamed. Lies have been told about me. They've laid complaints with us with the press council. And then at the last moment, I think they realized they want to hide into nothing. They withdrew. They've never taken any story that we've ever done and said, that is wrong. Here is the proof. So it's the old strategy. If you can't attack the facts, attack the messenger. I know the theme of the podcast is around trust and, and truth and transparency. And, and it's been really powerful for me to watch. As you said, as you've continued to keep going, Ray, you and Anton, and you've really been leading that charge, uh, the trust that people have had then to come forward with deeper and deeper leaks about what's happening. Um, and so I think that's a real testament. So if you can just talk about how you decide to keep going, and then also with the water project, I mean, that really was your concept. I mean, I appreciate your mentioning me with the lottery, but you, you, when we were kind of saying, hey, what are we going to do next? You said, hey, we've just been through day zero in Cape Town. Water is everywhere, and the access to clean water is just critical. So can you talk a little bit about how you've gotten through and decided to keep going in the face of all this opposition. And then also, you you just released uh, last week, in fact, uh, a very strong piece with Steve Kretzman about Coca-Cola and its water guzzling during the day zero crisis. So with the Coca-Cola thing, um, just to, to wrap then, we wanted to look at Coca-Cola during day zero. People were lining up all over Cape Town. So Cape Town, the reason Cape Town is here is it's got a lot of fresh, lot of fresh springs all over Cape Town. And it's one of the reasons that it became a stopover point for sailors going from one side of the world to the other. There was no Suez Canal then. And what caught my eye with the Coca-Cola is at the height of it, there was a demonstration. And sometimes that's where a story comes from. Just an incident kicks it off. There was a demonstration outside Coca-Cola where um, several civil society organizations had got together to protest and were demanding that Coca-Cola use less water and they share the water that they, that they had. And, 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 and Coca-Cola's spin machine was working overtime. They were going to give away free water. They were going to bring in water trucks. They were going to sink wells. They were going to do all all kinds of things. And we then went through a process and we said, well, how did Coca-Cola and big business perform? Um, and we started with an access of, so FOIA, what you'd call it in the States. Um, uh, we call it PIATS, and that's our Access to Information Act. And we PIATS the city of Cape Town for Coca-Cola, the water usage, and the 10, the 10 biggest water users. And we were granted the information um, and given a spreadsheet with some unintelligible information, I think on purpose to confuse us. And they kept promising the information and it never came forward. And eventually we appealed on the grounds that the fact that the information wasn't forthcoming and they weren't prepared to explain what they'd given to us was the equivalent of a refusal. And in our appeal, the, the, the Speaker of the City of Cape Town, who's the appeals officer, 
um, was very harsh on the city of Cape Town for their behavior. And he explained to them what the law is and instructed them forthwith to give us, forthwith is a word that he used to give us the information. We yet to receive it. And he also admonished elected officials. He was talking about certain members of um, the city council, um, the management committee members, who were actively blocking us getting that information. But what we discovered with Coca-Cola, despite everything they said they were doing, they didn't do anything for at least a year. They carried on using water for at least a year. The city had cracked down very, very hard on ordinary residents. Um, The price of water went through the roof. People were being heavily fined. Um, And heavily fined, those who were using more than their 50 litres a day per person allocation were having governors put on their water so that once you'd used up, you had no more water for the day, you just ran out of water. And the city had called big business together a year earlier and said, guys, you need to cut your water usage. And they never, ever used... um, the bylaws, the emergency bylaws that were in place, they never fined them. Coca-Cola was never fined. They just asked them nicely not to do it. And, yeah, we got to the bottom of it. And the irony is, is after, the <laughs> after the story appeared, um, one particular council who, who, who the whole water thing, councillor under who the waterfalls, uh, waterfalls under, um, Her spin doctor lodged a complaint about our story, accused us of activism, journalism, and not fact-checking, and it was a complete diversion. Uh, She did not not point out a single mistake we'd made in the story. All she pointed out is things that we never said, And, and she set up an argument and then proceeded to knock down the argument um, based on based on information and facts that we'd never done. It was a beautiful piece of spin. It's uh, it's <laughs> it was a remarkable piece of spin. Well, the last thing I just wanted to check in with you about Ray uh, is that it's it's important to note that you're not only one of the original people involved with CCIJ, but you're the uh, editor of our first regional hub in Southern Africa and the support that we got from Open Society Southern Africa to build a a local network uh, uh, really headed by you of people looking at those water stories um, in the region. Uh, So can you just talk a a little bit about that? I know obviously COVID-19 has meant that some of that stuff has had to be on hold for a certain amount of time, but can you just talk about the vision and how you're getting that going? Because that's another exciting element, and then we'll just kind of go to final thoughts. So basically what the funding covers is um, several stories out of Southern Africa. We are looking at how women and children in Malawi are being affected by very poor infrastructure when they built a new capital, which looked after the rich side of town and left the poor side of town out. Um, and so it's a variety. We're looking at stories in Namibia, um, a few villages where 
where several people have died because their only access to water are these deep wells that keep collapsing on top of people. And again, what, we, what we're looking at is a very similar theme as water and how it's affecting ordinary people. But like with the lottery, the story changes in different countries. Final thoughts uh, before we sign off. I uh, really appreciate hearing about your career, taking us through uh, the lottery project, talking about the Coke story and water that you just did your leadership on CCIJ in the region, and that you're feeling energized and going as strong and, and getting as much joy from the work as ever in year 48 as, as you did at the beginning. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity. This is Transparency Talks, the member-focused podcast about truth, Transparency and Trust, produced by Volume. You can find out more about CCIJ at our website at ccij.io or by checking out our Twitter handle at the underscore CCIJ, all lowercase. This is Jeff Kelly Lowenstein signing off. Have a great day. Stay safe and stay true. Volume.